0: And he's telling us that the tongue is capable of spewing out everything that goes against the plans and the values that God has. The tongue can corrupt in the same way that the world system can destroy a culture or a nation. Whether it's boastful pride, whether it's destructive anger, whether it's cutting bitterness, whether it's flattering lust, it can destroy.
1: Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Broge. Dr. Broge is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are currently in a study in the book of James, and today, Pastor Carl begins in chapter three, verse one. He will exposit the first two verses where James is reminding us that those who wish to serve in the office of pastor-teacher should be mindful of the increased responsibility and stricter judgment that comes with that decision. Let's join Pastor Carl to find out why.
0: The judgment to determine whether or not you go to heaven or hell is settled ever before you take your last breath. The moment you die, you have already destined yourself for either heaven or hell. Jesus said the Son of Man did not come into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who does not believe in him is judged already. Why? Because we're guilty, we're fallen. He didn't come with a message of condemnation. But there is a judgment saved people will face. It's called the Bema Seat. It's called the Judgment Seat of Christ. It's the judgment of the just. It takes place in heaven. You're saved by grace, not by works. But the grace that saves should work, and the grace that saves you should teach you to live holy and righteously, and someday you will stand eyeball to eyeball with Jesus Christ. And as a believer... He will determine your reward. And that reward for pastors is predicated on how faithful they were to this office. And let me give you three reasons why a pastor will indeed encompass a stricter judgment. First and foremost, because they are not to teach their opinion, they are to teach the Word of God. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says to young Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And then he warned quickly, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Ladies and gentlemen, that time has come. I spoke with a pastor this week, and people were on his case for preaching a 45-minute sermon. I'm telling you, those folks wouldn't like this church. (laughs) But you see, they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn the, turn aside to myths. But you, soudé, I have those two words. They were written on my study for some 20 words, 20 years. Two Greek words, soudé, soudé. But you, but you, Timothy, as a pastor, but you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So, the key element of shepherding the flock of God is feeding the flock of God. And so, when a pastor does that faithfully, Peter says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So, first, there comes accountability with teaching, and that we are not to give our opinions, we are to preach the truth. Jesus said in Luke 12, 48, for everyone who has been given much, much will be required, and to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. And so, a teacher will be required all the more of much. And so, a pastor who earns his living through preaching the Word of God has great accountability, I am to come and I am to present to you a well-prepared spiritual meal because I have more time to prepare that meal than you would. And if I come and it's just kind of a laxadaisical, off the cuff, whatever I want to say that morning, God will be displeased. So with increased blessing comes increased influence. With increased responsibility comes increased accountability. So James is saying, oh, you want to be a pastor? You want to be a teacher? You want to serve in that office? Have you considered the responsibility? Have you considered that you will incur a stricter judgment? And knowing that I will incur such a judgment, I take it seriously. Remember the apostles in Acts 6? By the way, every apostle is a pastor teacher. Not every pastor, teacher is an apostle. In fact, there are no apostles today, contrary to Roman Catholic doctrine. To have been an apostle, you had to have seen the risen Christ, been personally selected by him. And Paul says, if those things are true, then you'll do the signs, wonders, and miracles that only an apostle can do, proving that God had called you and chosen you. In in Acts 6, he says, it's not desirable for us. To neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. There was a real need, if you remember Acts 6. But we, we apostles, will devote ourselves to what? To prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Listen, there's a lot of meetings and gatherings that people want me to come to, and they want me to come to them because their last pastor came to them, and they think that that's what I should do. I did a funeral not that long ago, and one of the relatives, not a member of the church, said, well, why didn't you come to the house? I said, I would have loved to have been at the house, but I couldn't be at the house. And I said, there are certain things that God has called me to do in terms of preaching the word and evangelizing the lost. And by the way, you're a relative because I was out one night sharing the gospel and not at home with my family came to faith in Jesus Christ. So there are things that sometimes congregations expect a pastor to do that God does not call them to do. But there's another reason given here in the immediate context of James 3 as to why we should not seek the office of teacher, knowing that we will incur a stricter judgment. Contextually, it's because he's dealing, if you remember, with the subject of the tongue. And teachers use their tongues more. I preach an average of 750 words a minute with Gus up to a 1,000. I use my tongue a lot. Teachers deal with words and concepts and ideas and doctrines and influence. And and they shape the lives of people when they hear what they have to say for good or for bad. And so if the tongue is not bridled, it can do great damage or it can do great good. You see, to sin with the tongue either all by yourself or with two or three people is one thing. But to sin with the tongue in front of a whole congregation is far worse. And so he's saying, listen, don't make a mad rush for the pulpit because there's a stricter judgment. The chief shepherd is coming and you are going to have to give an account. And he will determine based on the accuracy of what we taught, whether it was beneficial or not, how he will reward us. But teachers, understand, are not the only ones who use their tongue. And so now he brings it down to each of us. Look at verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways. And all God's people said, that was really weak. But if you cannot take it, By what God says, just take it by faith. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone, he says, does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, a teleos man, able to bridle the whole body as well. The Greek word teleos is the word for mature. It doesn't mean sinless. There's only one sinless man who ever walked on the earth, and his name is Yeshua. Only... Jesus was sinless, but he's describing here a mature man, and by mature, he doesn't mean someone who's arrived, but someone who has a grown-up and a growing relationship with Christ. We just mentioned in Hebrews 5, he's not referring again to a, a, a someone who has it all together, but they've grown enough where by this time they ought to be teachers, and someone who is indeed spiritual has control over the tongue. He is able, verse 2 says, to bridle the whole body as well. In other words, if you can bridle the tongue, you can bridle the whole body. Think of it this way. If a man can run a marathon, then he can easily run down to the post office a half mile away. If a surgeon can uh, operate on your eye, then he can easily take a splinter out of your finger. And what James is saying here is if you can do the harder thing, then you can do the easier thing. Understand, he is saying here that the tongue is connected to the whole person, the whole body, because, again, Jesus said, the, the mouth speaks that which fills the heart. And so angry, uh, angry countenance reflects an angry heart and typically produces angry words. Or a person with filthy jokes and coarse language as a person with a dirty heart, Jesus said, You brood of vipers. A brood, by the way, someone asked me, What does that verb mean? It's not a br- verb, it's a, it's a noun. You brood like a covey of, a covey of what? Quail. A covey of quail. Just wanted to make sure you still remembered. <laughs> you brood of, because <laughs> I couldn't remember. <laughs> you brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Your tongue, it represents the real you. It tells on you. It's a tattletale, so to speak. So when James says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. His point is simple. The last member of your body to be mastered is the tongue. And when you are able to bridle the tongue then you are mature, then you are spiritual. When you can control the tongue, it doesn't mean that you will be sinless. But the overall direction that your tongue will take will be that that represents maturity. And so now in verses three through five, he goes on to give us three graphic illustrations. He illustrates with three very small things that comparatively speaking have great influence. He looks at the illustration of the bit in verse three, the illustration of the rudder in verse four, and then the illustration of a small fire in verse five. So wanting us to understand that size does not determine significance, he begins with the illustration of the bit. The illustration of the bit. Point A on your outline if you're taking notes. Look now, if you will, at verse 3. Now, if we put the bite, the bits, into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. It was not until we lived in Texas that I went to my very first rodeo in Mesquite, Texas. And I have to say, after we went, my appreciation for what those cowboys could do in handling those massive animals grew 10,000%. Even a gentle horse cannot be controlled without a bit. As long as they are expected to perform some service, either for riding or pulling a wagon or plowing or whatever it might be, they need a bit to control them, a little piece of metal about five inches long. And so in his analogy, the bit is your tongue, and your tongue controls the whole body. Now, with this illustration, James does not want us to miss this point, that something less powerful is able to control something more powerful. The movement of that little tongue in your mouth can determine a huge amount of direction. Do not ever forget what even a little bit of a word can do to someone. There is a time, certainly to be silent, but he's not arguing for a vow of silence. He's asking for control. I think of an incident I have when we were at Duke University. My wife and I went on that campus in 1980. There was one student who had come to Christ through our ministry at UNC, transferred to Duke her junior year, and so we started with one person. Well, within a year, we were the largest group on campus by the grace of God. Largest of any kind of group, religious, non-religious. But because we were evangelicals and we were on a liberal Methodist campus, one of the first Methodist campuses to do civil marriages and then now gay marriages and on and on it went. But the the so-called pastor of the university who we were accountable to, he didn't like evangelicals and he made that clear the day we arrived. So we didn't get an office. We never had an office. All these other clubs with 10 students, 15, they had an office. So where is my office? The front steps of the chapel. I would meet students. You know where the chapel is? You couldn't miss it. It was like a massive cathedral almost. I'll meet you on the steps of the chapel, and then we'd go find a place in the cafeteria, and I'd share the gospel or open God's Word or whatever it might be. Well, on one particular day, a young man came up to me, and he said, Carl, I just want to thank you for leading me to Christ. I said, I'm sorry. I I don't even remember your name. When did I introduce you to Christ? He said, you are standing here on these very steps, And you were waiting for an appointment. And you struck up a conversation with me. And you asked me if I was a Christian. And I said, I try to be. And I said, Well, trying to be a Christian is like trying to be an elephant. You can try all you want, but it's not going to happen. And he said, I could not get those few words out of my mind. You gave me this booklet, and it sat on the top drawer of my desk, and I read it and reread it over the next couple of years, but I have finally trusted Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. Oh, how the Holy Spirit of God can use just a bit of speech to change the direction of a person's life. And he can do that for good or he can do it for evil. Now James gives us a second illustration here in verse 4, the illustration of the rudder, the illustration of the rudder. Follow along as I read verse 4. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds... Are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So James tells us that the tongue is also like the rudder of a large ship. It can bring a ship that's buffeted and tossed by the wind into a harbor safely, or in the wrong hands, as we saw a few years ago with one of those cruise line accidents, right into a reef turning the boat on its side. Now, according to Acts chapter 27, the apostle Paul was on a ship that held 276 persons. And for that day, that was a huge ship. And of course, through the centuries, the ships, the aircraft carriers we have could swallow up that ship a thousand times over. But still, even the largest ship in the world is directed by a little small rudder. As this picture shows, during World War II, the Germans had in their fleet a ship known as the Bismarck. And the Bismarck became famous for sinking one of the Brits' most famous World War I ships, the HMS Hood. And the situation became desperate because the Bismarck could not seem to impact the British uh, lanes that were sending ammunition to different places in, in Europe. And so on one particular day wanting to take it down. They torpedoed the rudder, and the HMS hood was disabled. And the Bismarck just bombed them and bombed them and bombed them until it sank. A small little rudder disabled that ship. And James is saying, your tongue is like a small little rudder With your tongue, you can move an army, you can control nations for good or evil. I'm always fascinated to watch the documentaries of either Adolf Hitler or Winston Churchill and to see the speeches that they would give and how Hitler could, with uh, words, work up the German people into a frenzy for evil. and How Churchill could whip up the British people for good. And so size does not determine significance. Now in verse 5, he gives us a third illustration. He gives us the illustration of the spark. The illustration of the spark. Not only is the tongue like a bit in the horse's mouth, not only is it like a very small rudder on a mighty ship, but it is also like a small fire, a small flame the net Bible says, or a spark, the NIV 84 says, like a small spark in a dry forest. Now the analogy Would have been immediately recognizable to James's audience, especially in the first century, because fire out of control was very destructive in that day. Indeed, it's a challenge even to our day, even with the most sophisticated equipment and training that some of our own firefighters in this church have. Look at verse 5. So, also, the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. Here's a picture of the great Chicago fire of 1871. If you remember, Mrs. O'Leary, it is said, to have been milking her cow. The cow kicked over the lantern and caused the fire in the barn. And by the time they had it under control, 10,000 people were left homeless, 17,000 buildings were burned to the ground, 300 people died, and some $400 million in the date of in 1871 figures was recreated and damaged. When I was in the 5th, I was trying to remember if it was the 5th or 6th grade, me and two of my friends, Mark and Alex, I won't give their last names in case they're watching and I don't want to embarrass them, but we decided to have a campfire to roast weenies at a little hill, probably about a 50, 60 acre site, it was called Bald Hill, and we had a grand time building that fire and roasting those hot dogs, and we left it unattended, and before long, it got out of control. And the whole hill began to burn up. Uh, We didn't call the fire department. We were too scared. Uh, Unfortunately, it didn't do any serious damage. Listen, kids, I'm not saying that this was the right thing to do. I'm just telling you what happened historically. But a small little campfire took down some 50 acres of grass. And in the last few years, we've witnessed some of the worst fires in California's history. They said one was started just from a cigarette bot. Just a small fire can set a forest aflame. So James wants us to understand that just a few words can bring devastation or destruction like a fire. Proverbs says this in the 16th chapter. A worthless man digs up evil while his words are like scorching fire. Now, fire can be a wonderful servant. You can't get very far without it. You drove here based on a fire and a little spark in your car that ignited the engine. That's what we used to roast our hot dogs that day. And in some parts of the world, I've been to some places in India, and they heat their homes, they cook their meals, they live on dirt floors, and that's all they have. And it's critical. Fire can warm, fire can burn. Fire can bless, fire can destroy. Fire can warm a heart, or fire can inflame hatred words are like fire they can hurt they can be fiery they can destroy That's the influence of the tongue. Now, James gives us the second point of this three-little-point sermon. I love James because he's a three-point sermon man, and every preacher loves James for that reason. All the way through this little book, he gives three points, and then he gives three sub-points. It's beautiful. Think with me also the iniquity, the iniquity of the tongue, the iniquity of the tongue. Look now, if you will, at verse 6. And the tongue is a fire, The very world of iniquity... The tongue is set among our members is that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. Now that's a very interesting statement. Look at the start again of verse 6. The tongue is a fire the very world of iniquity. One translation says the world of wrongdoing, the world of unrighteousness, the English standard renders it. The world of unrighteousness finds its expression in the tongue. Now, the word here for world is the word cosmos, and it's a word that finds its meaning in its context. For God so loved the world there, he's speaking of people. Sometimes the word cosmos is used to describe the planet that we are living on today, or sometimes it is used to describe a worldly point of view. Love not the world nor the things that are in the world. Why? Because the Satan, the evil one, is energizing this world system, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. So this word is used in this context to describe this depraved, fallen, sinful, world perspective that so many people have. And he's telling us that the tongue is capable of spewing out everything that goes against the plans and the values that God has. The tongue can corrupt in the same way that the world system can destroy a culture or a nation. Whether it's boastful pride, whether it's destructive anger, whether it's cutting bitterness, whether it's flattering lust, it can destroy The tongue is the microcosm of evil. It's the very, to quote him, the very world of iniquity. And again, being the great illustrator that he is, he gives us three figures of speech to underscore the iniquity of the tongue. First, he reminds us that the tongue defiles. The tongue defiles. He writes here in verse 6, The tongue is said among our members is that which defiles the entire body. This word defiles is also translated in Jude verse 23 as pollutes. The word simply meant to stain or to, deplu- to to pollute. And he's describing the tongue among our body, among our members, is that that's something that pollutes. It could be used of an of a open, raw sewage that goes into a fresh lake and pollutes the lake outside of the New Testament. And so he wants us to know that our tongue can be like a dirty sewer pipe that can have tremendous, defiling consequences. It might be complaining, it might be gossiping, it might be bragging, it might be lying. But not only does the tongue defile, secondly, the tongue destroys. The tongue destroys. He tells us further here in verse six that it sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. Now, if you have the new American standard with marginal notes, You will look out in the margin, and you will see that the word hell here is not the traditional word that is often used in the New Testament, Hades. Absent from the body, present with the Lord if you're saved. Absent from the body today, present in Hades. And someday, as we studied in the Revelation, death and Hades will both find themselves in the lake of fire. But Jesus uses the word Gehenna, And it's the word for hell in its truest translation. It's the word that describes the final resting place, not only of Satan and the false prophet and the Antichrist, but every lost person who has ever lived. And so Jesus uses a very picturesque word that every Jew immediately knew. Gehenna, if you go with me to Israel, and God willing, we're planning to go. And by the way, the trip is filling up unusually fast but when we go there, we often will go to the Dung Gate, and we will look over the Valley of Gehenna, the Hinnom Valley. And the Hinnom Valley in Jesus' day is where Jewish people brought their garbage and their refuge and their dead animals and the unclaimed bodies of Gentiles and criminals. And there was a constant burning and unceasing flame, and maggots everywhere. And so when Jesus wants to give a word picture of the torment of hell, that's the illustration he uses. Where their worm does not die, where the fire is never quenched, as he says in Mark chapter 9. So James is simply saying here, just as the filth of Jerusalem was all gathered there in Gehenna, the evil filth of our sinful hearts is gathered on the tongue, and it produces little hells, so to speak. So James goes on here in verse 6, and he describes the tongue, notice, as that which sets on fire the course of our life, like an arsonist setting a fire. As
1: Pastor Carl pointed out, the last member of our body to be mastered is the tongue. When we are finally able to control our tongue, it is an indicator that we are maturing in our spiritual growth. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program James 007. Tomorrow, Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found in the iTunes and Google Play store. Also check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. When we return Monday, we will continue our series on the book of James. Join us then as we search the scriptures.